0: So good to see you this morning. Good morning and and happy Lord's Day. Uh, What a blessing it is to be with you. Uh, I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. This morning we come to yet another incredibly important and truly foundational passage in the book of Ephesians. As we prepare our hearts and our minds uh, to explore this text, it's vital for us to remember uh, the context in which this letter was written. Paul had already spent a couple of years in Ephesus. Um, he was sharing the gospel there. He was discipling new believers. He planted a church. And this church consisted of both Jewish and Gentile converts to Christianity, uh, people who would normally be at enmity with one another. Uh, the racial discord that often plagues Our own country uh, truly pales in comparison to the hatred and the vitriol that existed between Jew and Gentile in the first century. God had chosen the nation of Israel to be his chosen people. Uh, He had set them apart uh, from the other nations, and they were to be a light to those nations that were in the darkness. But the Jews perverted this call to be set apart, and and they developed a hatred for non-Jews. And this can easily be seen in the history of Jonah, the prophet. Uh, Most of you are very familiar with the story of Jonah. Uh, He was sent by God to prophesy to the Ninevites, uh, a foreign people, and uh, he initially chose to reject that call. Uh, Instead, he got on a boat sailing the opposite direction from Nineveh, and he uh, found himself in a a terrible storm. Uh, The crew threw him overboard in hopes of appeasing his God, And the Lord appointed a a large fish to swallow him up. And he spent three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. Well, eventually, Jonah found his way to Nineveh, where he preached a message of repentance. And that message reached the ears of the king of the Ninevites. And by God's grace, they repented. The Ninevites repented of sin and believed in God. This was cause for, for great celebration on Jonah's part. Uh, but rather than celebrating, he, he prayed to God to end his life uh, because these foreigners had be- believed in the God of the Bible. Such was the hatred of the Jews for the Gentiles. That hatred only intensified over the centuries. Uh, by the time Paul was writing to the Ephesians, it had been becoming illegal for Jews even to enter into uh, Gentile homes. It was illegal for Jewish m- midwives to help Gentile women Uh, deliver birth, because that would just further the Gentile race. It was a common belief that, at that time, uh, the only purpose the the Gentiles served was to to be flames uh, or fuel for the flames of hell. Uh, And that's just a small taste of of the hatred that existed between Jew and Gentile. With regard to their hatred for the Jews, the Gentiles were certainly no better. Uh, For hundreds of years, the Jews were seen as nothing more than, than slave labor. Uh, conquered by one foreign power after another, Jews had been taken into captivity. Uh, they'd been occupied by foreign armies. And Jews were disdained uh, in many ways, um, certainly because they couldn't even be forced into military service. Uh, they refused to serve on the Sabbath. Uh, they refused to violate their food laws by eating the rations that the armies were given, and so they couldn't even serve as, as forced soldiers. And this was the atmosphere in which Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, which, which consisted again of both Jewish and Gentile converts to Christianity. With that in mind, let's, let's dive into our text this morning Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Uh, please follow along as I read aloud. Therefore, remember at, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember But you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, the first word that we come across in our passage this morning is the word, therefore. As any good Bible scholar knows, when you come across the word, therefore, you have to ask yourself what it's there for, right? It's a, in this case, it's as if Paul was, was pointing back to those first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, and he's saying that since these things are true, uh, since all of this is true, since you were once dead in your trespasses and sins... Uh, Since you were made alive together with Christ, uh, since you have been saved by grace through faith and not a result of works, then you must remember who you were. That's point number one on our sermon outline. Remember who you were. Remember who you were. Up to this point in his letter, Paul had been writing to both the Jewish and the Gentile converts, these new believers in in Ephesus. But in verses 11 to 22, he narrowed down his target audience, uh, and his focus was just on these Gentile believers. It's clear that his goal was for them to remember who they were apart from Jesus Christ. Paul begins by telling the Gentile believers to to remember the reality of their situation uh, prior to coming to faith in Jesus. At one time, these Gentiles in the flesh, who were hatefully called the uncircumcision— by those who call themselves the circumcision, these Gentiles needed to remember that as unbelievers, uh, they were even worse off than the Jews were. Paul gives them five reasons why this is true, uh, five deficiencies of the Gentile believers. Uh, It it might be helpful to write these down, since this is also true of the vast majority of us who are also Gentiles. Uh, First, Paul tells the Gentiles that at one time they were separated from Christ, they were separated from Christ. As Gentiles, there was no national hope of a long-expected Messiah. Now, unlike the Jews who had been anticipating the coming of the Christ for centuries, the Gentile unbelievers probably had never even heard of the Messiah before Paul had come and brought the gospel to them. And they were utterly separated from Christ. Second, the Gentiles unbelievers were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. The Jews were God's chosen people, and the Gentiles were alienated from them. In Romans 9, verses 4 to 5, Paul expressed the benefits that the Jews enjoyed simply out of being Jewish. Romans 9, 4 and 5, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus told a Samaritan woman at the well that salvation is from the Jews. The Gentile unbelievers were cut off from the Jews. They weren't part of them. They were outsiders, alienated from the nation of Israel. They enjoyed none of these benefits that the Jews enjoyed simply for being Jewish. Third, Paul wanted the Gentiles to remember that as unbelievers, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. This likely refers to the covenants uh, like the uh, Davidic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, uh, and probably even the New Covenant as well. Uh, God made promises to Abraham that he would make a mighty nation out of his offspring. God promised David that he would never lack one of his offspring on the throne. God promised that there would be a new covenant in which he would remove the hearts of stone from the Jews and, and give them a heart of flesh and that he would put his spirit within them. The Jews were to be God's people, and he was to be their God. The Gentile and believers were were complete strangers to such promises. These were completely foreign concepts to them. Fourth, prior to believing in Jesus, the Gentiles had no hope. Much of the the teaching that our our children encounter in secular schools today uh, results in in hopelessness. If you follow the consequences of, of Darwinian evolution, If you take it down the road that it has to go, you end up believing that there is absolutely no purpose whatsoever in this life. Uh, Everything that happens is a result of of random chance. Life itself is a result of random chance. This life is all that we have. There's nothing after this life, so you better enjoy it while you got it. YOLO, right? You only live once. Eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. You compare that to to paul 's teaching in first corinthians fifteen nineteen where he says, "If in Christ we hope in this life only we of all people are most to be pitied. The promise of eternity with our Savior gives us hope it gives us strength to be able to overcome any challenge that we face, and that you know, without such hope, we truly are hopeless. And that was the case for the Ephesian Gentiles, before they believed in Christ. They had no hope. The fifth and final deficiency of the unbelieving Gentiles is that he or she is without God in the world. Uh, ironically, the Gentiles to whom Paul was writing had a number of, of small g gods in which they believed. Uh, in fact, Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis, um, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Despite having multiple false gods in which they believed that the Ephesian Gentiles were truly without the one true God, the only living God. They were without God in the world. So Paul wanted the uh, Gentile believers to remember uh, their helpless estate apart from Christ. While they might have been in the same boat as the, Jew, as the Jews regarding being dead in their trespasses and sins, they were even worse off than the Jews in many other regards. Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. If you were to sum it all up with one word, You can say it was alienation. They were completely alienated from God. This was the reality of those who were apart from Christ in the first century. It's the reality of those who are apart from Christ in the 21st century. Completely alienated. The natural defense against such a reality is is simply to not think about such things uh, and and to try to distract oneself uh, by any means possible. Uh, Here in America... Uh, we, we try to distract ourselves, usually the majority does, does with the acquisition of material things, uh, commonly referred to as, as stuff. Uh, I like to call it junk, right? And this, the, this distracts us from the reality of, of, of being alienated from God. A social Darwinist, Herbert Spencer, wrote, my own feeling respecting the ultimate mystery is such that I cannot even try to think of it without some feeling of terror, so I habitually Shun the thought. I just choose not to think about it. Ignorance is bliss, but it doesn't last forever. Rather than remaining blissfully ignorant, Paul commanded the the Gentile believers to remember what it was like for them before they had ever heard the gospel of Christ. Then in verses 13 to 18, uh, Paul calls their attention to the reconciliation won for them by Jesus Christ. Now, Paul counteracts those, those five Gentile deficiencies with a list of benefits Uh, for those who have been, been reconciled to Christ. Paul wanted the Ephesian Gentiles to remember what Christ did for them. I want you to remember the same thing. Remember what Christ did for you. That's point number two in your outlines. Remember what Christ did for you. Let's read through verses 13 to 18 again. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, First and foremost, note that it is in Christ and in Christ alone that those who once were far off have been brought near, and that by his blood. It's not through Moses. It's not through perfect church attendance. It's not through any kind of self-righteousness that we could try to attain. It's not through clean living, but it's only through Jesus Christ and through his blood. He shed very real blood on the cross of Calvary. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the cross is central to what Christ did for us. We cannot possibly remember what Christ did for us without first thinking about the cross. Let's consider a few of the other things that Jesus accomplished for us through his finished work on the cross. First, Jesus has brought us peace He brought us peace with God. Uh, He brought us peace with others. Uh, Paul said that Christ himself is our peace. He was prophesied in the Old Testament as the Prince of Peace. Uh, In John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. In Colossians, we're told to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Peace is not found in the absence of conflict. Uh, Peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, true, lasting peace is not accomplished by some sort of State Department uh, diplomats brokering some sort of long-term peace accord. True peace is in Christ alone. Uh, We need that peace, don't we? Uh, We daily need that peace. This world in which we live needs that peace. They need a peace that's apart from this world, a peace that's not stained by sin. Uh, Kent Hughes tells the story of of a peace march that took place All the way back in in 1986, some of you guys can remember back then, the mullets were long and the bangs were big. Well, in 1986, there were about 1,200 people who set off from Los Angeles in this peace march, and they started off pretty well. They made it uh, all the way to Barstow, which was, I think it's about 120 miles away, but at that point, about half of those that were marching uh, decided to pack it up and, and call it quits. They went home. And those that were remaining became polarized quickly between those who were the real marchers and then those who were just riding along in vehicles. Uh, And so they started to bicker. uh, And there was bickering even uh, about a dress code. And so they decided to to have an election, uh, but they couldn't figure out who was allowed to vote and and who wasn't allowed to vote. And so they ended up saying, well, everybody gets a vote, even the kids. And so they voted. Uh, But then they decided that that vote was completely invalid. And so, these peace marchers, uh, many of them left the march uh, not even speaking to one another. Uh, We don't need this kind of peace. We need the peace of Christ. And this is not the kind of peace that that we need. It's it's the peace of Christ that we need. And it's only found in him alone. Secondly, Christ has made us one. Uh, Christ has made us one. Paul said that, that Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, at that time, Paul was writing this letter. There was a physical wall in Jerusalem uh, at the temple which separated Gentiles from Jews. Um, The Jewish historian Josephus noted that there were signs attached to this wall. It was about four and a half, five feet tall, and there were signs that were written both Greek and uh, Latin, and it basically said that uh, any Gentile trespassing, climbing over the wall, would only have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Uh, it's not that trespassers would be prosecuted, it's that pro- the trespassers would be executed. Um, it's possible that Paul was referring to that wall in the letter, but I think it's probably unlikely that that was his intention, especially since uh, these Ephesian Gentiles probably had no firsthand knowledge of this temple. They, they weren't familiar with that wall. Instead, Paul was probably using uh, metaphorical language here, not, not referring to a physical wall, but referring to a metaphorical b- barrier that existed between as a result of, of the law um, of commandments expressed in ordinances which separated Jew from Gentile. The Jews had food laws which separated them from, from Gentiles. They had ceremonial and sacrificial laws that separated them from the Gentiles. Jesus said set all of this aside by offering himself as the atoning sacrifice on the cross. Now, as a result of his work on the cross, Jesus created in himself one new man in place of the two. In Christ, there is one new humanity. That's the church. And It's a beautiful reality. Again, think about that hostility that existed between, between Jew and Gentile. Christ brought an end to that hostility. He killed that hostility. Outside the church, efforts are underway to try to bring uh, racial reconciliation to our country uh, through efforts like Education and legislation. More often than not, these efforts only serve to further divide the country than than to bring any sort of lasting unity. But the cross of Jesus brings genuine and eternal unity. Because of this unity, which has been won for us by Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no room for racism inside the Church of Christ. There can never possibly be any justification for any kind of racism in the church, ever. Paul told the Galatians, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. He wrote something similar to the Colossians. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. The best antidote to disunity or even hostility between believers is an understanding and a remembrance of the cross of Christ. We extend forgiveness to others because at the cross we've been forgiven much. We set aside any sort of anger, wrath, malice, or slander because God set aside his wrath from us and poured it on Jesus at the cross. In addition to bringing peace and and making us one, Paul said that Jesus came and preached peace. Jesus preached peace. We see that in verse 17, and he came... And preach peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus preached peace before he went to the cross. Uh, he preached peace while he was on the cross. He preached peace after he resurrected from the cross. And that message of pre- peace is, is still proclaimed today by his followers. Uh, it is through the proclamation of the gospel of peace that sinners come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And experience firsthand the peace that surpasses all understanding. With eyes on verse 18, we see one more thing that Jesus has done for us through his work on the cross. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Did you notice the Trinitarian language there? Through God the Son, we both have access to God, or by God the Holy Spirit, to God the Father. It's only through Jesus, by the Spirit, that we can access the Father. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But notice that Paul said that we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Gentiles, who are now believers by grace through faith, and Jews, who are now believers by grace through faith, are are now one new man in place of the two. Uh, This is absolutely huge. Jesus didn't paganize the Jews, Uh, he didn't Judaize the Gentiles, Uh, he, he didn't create a half breed between the two. He created an entirely new race. This is what theologians refer to as as the third race. This is the church. Uh, Back in the second century, Clement of Alexandria Alexandria wrote, we who worship God in a new way, as the third race, are Christians. This new race is the the subject of the rest of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapters 4 through 6, he's telling this church, this new race, how to live out as the church, their li- how to live out their lives as the church, how to live out their lives in their families, and how to live out their lives in the world. And by his death, through his blood, uh, through the cross, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, he killed the hostility. Where there was only enmity before, now there is peace. Where there was alienation, now there is reconciliation between God and man, as well as between man and man. And this one new man, the church, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, we now have access in one spirit to the Father. This morning, as the body of Christ in Makikilo, we are enjoying and rejoicing in that access. Like the Ephesian Gentiles, we would do well to remember what Christ did for us. So far, I've encouraged you to remember who you were, uh, to remember what Christ did for you Now, I want, to, I want you to remember what you have become. Point number three in your outlines. Point uh, is, remember what you have become. We see this in verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul's vision of this new third race is is truly magnificent. Uh, He uses three graphic images to describe what the Ephesian Gentiles and Jews uh, have become in Christ. First, a city, uh, then a family, and then a great building. First, a city. Uh, Citizenship was a source of, of great pride in the ancient world, much like it is even today. Uh, As Americans, we we know what it's like to be a citizen of a great country. Uh, In the Greco-Roman culture to which Paul was writing, citizenship was not only very important, but it was also very personal. Uh, A person's citizenship, uh, the city in which they lived, often really even defined their identity. In verse 19, Paul is saying that the Gentile believers were no longer refugees, they were no longer strangers and aliens, but instead had come to possess a citizenship far greater than any local citizenship, far greater than the highly coveted Roman citizenship. and This is a kingdom citizenship, and its implications are immense. Those who were once cut off and lived as aliens were now reconciled to God and to believing Jews and to other believing Gentiles. They had become a common people. This is a universal experience for all Christians. Along with the believing Jews and Gentiles of Ephesus, we have a common language uh, which is grounded in the Word of God. Uh, We have a common heritage and a history as part of the Christian faith. We have a common allegiance to God, uh, allegiance which supersedes any allegiance to local or federal government. We have a common purpose in living which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We even have a common destination, a heavenly city that is being built together by Christ that's being prepared for us. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers in Christ, wherever we go, we are free from alienation. At NBC, almost every Sunday, we host a number of brothers and sisters in Christ who are free from alienation, who are reconciled to God by his grace, and who find belonging in this church body, Uh, even if it's just for one Sunday or two. They don't have to show any papers in order to worship with us. Uh, No no passports are required. Uh, We are fellow citizens of the same kingdom. This third race not only enjoys a common citizenship, but Paul says that we also are part of God's family. You are fellow citizens with the saints and, and members of the household of God. This is a surprising truth. Uh, Perhaps one could have imagined that Jews and Gentiles might have had shared a common citizenship. If you think about Paul, he was a Jew of Jews, but he was also a Roman citizen. Uh, But to say that they were part of the same family, that was completely revolutionary. Uh, Being fellow citizens is one thing, but being part of the same family is is a much more intimate thing. All of us who are part of this third race, we have the same father. Together we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, he started off by saying, Our Father, who is in heaven. We all have the spirit of adoption as sons. Uh, to all who receive Jesus, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. All of God's children call him by the same intimate name, Father. As members of God's household, we are in close relationship with one another. I think that this is probably what made the COVID restrictions of last year so difficult. I can't remember exactly how many weeks we were uh, kept from meeting together. I think it was about eight or ten weeks where we couldn't uh, gather as a church body. And it was extremely hard. It was tough. Uh, For me personally, it was was very difficult. And uh, many people shared that it was difficult for them as well. When we gather together uh, for worship, uh, we also get to spend time encouraging one another. We speak psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with one another. We spur each other on to love and to good works. Uh, Paul told Timothy that in the church we are to treat one another as family. First uh, Timothy 5, 1-2 to says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. For many of us who live in Hawaii, uh, there's a great distance between us and our blood relatives. And this is especially true for our military families. Uh, even so, as, as members of the household of God, we are surrounded by fathers and mothers and, and brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, this is the reality of the third race, which has been reconciled to God. We are all, we are all part of the ohana of God. In verses 20 to 22, Paul provides his most elaborate picture of the church with the imagery of a temple. Uh, He writes of Christians being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul's speaking metaphorically again, but he's using a word picture that these ephesians definitely would have understood uh, even though the gentiles in Ephesus had no probably had no knowledge of the temple in Jerusalem uh, they were not uh, strangers to other temples including that temple of Artemis which was in their own backyards in developing this word picture Paul used three main aspects uh, the foundation the cornerstone and then the living stones let's take a quick look at each of those uh, first the foundation Paul starts by saying that the the third new race, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And and in that word order, he seems to be suggesting that it's the New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. He's not pointing back to Old Testament. That certainly could be the case. But the apostles, of course, they they were the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. They were the ones that were sent out to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And these New Testament prophets were those to whom and, and through whom the Word of God was proclaimed. Since both the apostles and the prophets had had a teaching role, that means that this this foundation that Paul's talking about is is teaching. It's the Word of God. We at NBC, we we make every effort to ensure that that is true of our church, that the foundation of this church is the Word of God. It's not the music. uh, It's not the pastor. It's not a personality. It is the Word of God. The church will stand or fall in its regard for the Scriptures. If we tamper with this foundation, that is, if we're not faithful with the handling of God's Word, then the entire temple will crumble. This is why Paul told Timothy to preach the Word. And this is why we are devoted to the public reading of Scripture. This is why you are listening to a message from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, instead of some sort of TED Talk disguised as a sermon, with a guy having a man bun and skinny jeans trying to motivate you to live your best life now. No, we are dedicated to the Word of God. It is truly the foundation of the church. Anything else is is shaky ground. Anything else is just shifting sand. And as vital as the foundation is, there's another aspect uh, of even greater importance, and that is the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone of a building was important for two reasons. Uh, first, it was part of that foundation, and secondly, it fixed the angle of the building. Uh, every angle, uh, every aspect of the building, every wall was grounded, it hinged on that cornerstone. And going back hundreds of years before Christ to Isaiah's prophecy, the term cornerstone was was a prophetic designation of the Messiah. Isaiah 28:16 says, "Therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Listen to Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 and following, where Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 and refers to himself as the cornerstone. Jesus said to them, talking to the chief priests and Pharisees, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The leaders of his day rejected Jesus Christ by crucifying him, but God made him the cornerstone of this new temple, which is the church. This is the Lord's doing. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Lastly, we see the final components of the new temple, which are the living stones. That includes you. That includes me. We are these living stones. We see this in verse 20, verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Gentiles were were excluded from the Jerusalem temple by a wall of hostility with, with signs threatening death. But now in Christ, these same Gentiles and all believers in Jesus Christ actually form the walls of this new temple. First Peter chapter two, verses four to five puts it like this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All of this forms really an incredible image. Uh, Try to see it in your mind's eye for a second. Just picture Jesus Christ as as this enormous uh, cornerstone. And then... Next, the the Word of God, the the teaching of the apostles and prophets is laid down upon and next to the cornerstone, forming the foundation. Of course, Jesus gives that foundation its shape. He gives it it its strength. He gives it its stability. Finally, one by one, living stones are, are being built together to make a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And notice that Paul used the divine passive voice in that. They are being built together. Not, they're not building themselves. This is a work of the Lord, uh, and it's truly marvelous in our sight. God once filled the tabernacle uh, with his glory in the wilderness in such a way that Moses couldn't even enter into the tent. Uh, then God filled the Jerusalem temple with his glory in much the same way. Now, by the Holy Spirit of God, the third race, the, the church, has become his chosen dwelling place. John MacArthur summed up this passage nicely. He said, Through the blood, uh, the suffering flesh, the cross, and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, aliens, aliens became citizens. Strangers become family. Idolaters become the temple of the true God. The hopeless inherit the promises of God. Those without Christ become one in Christ. Those far off are brought near, and the godless are reconciled to God. Therein is the reconcilia- reconciliation Excuse me, reconciliation of men to God and of men to men. Paul's vision of the church, the body of reconciled Jews and Gentiles, the third race, this is something that we should remember because this is something that we have also become. That's why Paul wrote what he wrote in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Remember who you were. Remember what Christ did for you. Remember what you have become. There certainly are a number of applications and implications from this text, and I hope that you get a chance to talk about those uh, during family group discussions this week, but I'll leave you with just a couple here before we close in a word of prayer. The clearest, I think, and and most immediate application of the text is simply to obey what Paul commands here. He says to remember. Uh, We are to be obedient to that call. Remembering who we were before God saved us evokes special praise and thanks to God. Rather than taking for granted the grace that he extended to us, his strong arm of salvation, we should spend time daily meditating upon God's grace and saving us. We ought to remember our helpless and hopeless estate before Christ saved us. The marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, that should be something that we remember Uh, Remembering what Christ did for us puts our focus exactly where it should be, on Christ. Uh, We're too quick to forget that our entire lives, our our very identity, is wrapped up in Christ. Remembering what he has done for us clears away the fog of forgetfulness, and it focuses our attention where it should be, on Jesus. Remembering what we have become motivates us to, to love and to good works. Uh, we are his workmanship. He recreated us in Christ Jesus to do good works, and so we should walk in them. Lastly, if we cor- correctly understand this passage, uh, our concept of the local church should really be elevated. Uh, we cannot read this passage honestly without seeing the importance of the local body of believers. Now think about the graces of God uh, in the local church. Uh, in, in this church, we, we have a family of faith. Uh, we get to gather together corporately for worship. We get to encourage others and to be encouraged by others. We get to love others as Christ loved us. We get to share one another's burdens. We get to be taught and, and admonished by one another. We get to give financially for the spread of the gospel. We we get to celebrate the Lord's table together. And it's amazing to me that there are people who call themselves Christians who intentionally separate themselves from all of these graces that are given to them by God in the local church. Uh, There's American individualism or Western individualism that says, um, I don't need church. I can can be part of the universal church. Uh, The writings in the New Testament uh, assume that the, the recipients, the readers of that letter, we're going to be part of a local body of believers. There, there's no context in the Bible for, for those who are in Christ but not part of a church. Now, when we read this text, the, our concept of church should be greatly elevated. We should love the church all the more. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says that whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. And Christ Jesus loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. Shouldn't we do the same? Let's pray. Father God, what a blessing it is to call you Father. Uh, May your Holy Spirit continue to impress upon us the truth and beauty of this text. As we better understand our condition apart from Christ, may we worship you and rejoice all the more for being saved by your grace through faith in Jesus. Thank you for Jesus Christ who is our peace. Thank you that in Christ we are reconciled to you and to our fellow man. Thank you for the blessings of being part of this local body of believers. And thank you for your continuing work to grow your church in Makakilo. Equip us to proclaim the gospel of peace to a world that is separated from Christ, hopeless, and without God in the world. Lord, if there are any in our midst who are living in that reality, I ask that even now you would grant them repentance and belief. May they feel the weight of their sin against you. May they comprehend their helpless estate apart from Christ. May they turn from sin and believe in Jesus. This cannot happen without the work of your Holy Spirit, so we ask that your Spirit would regenerate hearts this morning and that you would extend your saving grace to the lost. We ask all of this in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.